to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of a spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred texts, rooted in the earth, and lived through activist issues facing us today. It's good. Oops. They're both very tasty. Mm, I don't know. I'm on my way here. Yeah. A blue Subaru, just like yours. Yeah. Cut me off so that I couldn't get off at 7th East. And I was like, if that's Madison, so help me. It had to have had the uh, the do good sticker on the back because, it didn't. except for my O is coming off, so it's saying it says like do goud. <laughs> I actually saw that when I was pulling <laughs> up. I was like, what? do goud. Health Aid Pink Lady Apple Kombucha with an assortment of uh, Halloween candies <laughs> <laughs> that we raided from the downstairs. Am I just bad at opening? I got it. Okay, I was gonna say, <laughs> let me know if you need help. Let's do this thing. Okay, let's jump in to bonus episode, Bristlecone Firesides. Are you recording? Yeah. Oh, tight. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Do people still say tight? I don't know. Because I do, but I don't know if that's like a thing. No, that I mean, other I've said, do. I say tight all the time. Okay. I mean, I say a lot of words too. Some of them are swear words. <laughs> okay. All right, so with this bonus episode, this bonus episode, uh, I think <laughs> bonus I think the goal was to be really raw, really unpolished, uh, and just to provide the audience an opportunity to get to know me and you a little bit better. Okay, um, because we gave ourselves little brief intros in episode one, but I think what really sells a podcast is is getting to know us and our personalities and where we're coming from you know because uh, I think I think the audience will want to know at least I hope they want to know this is not just an opportunity for me to talk about myself <laughs> or is it or I wouldn't is judge it? you either way <laughs> I think most people enjoy talking about themselves oh I love talking about myself but I also love helping other people talk about themselves yeah you know it's a it's a it's a mutual exchange I, I greatly benefit from listening, I've learned in my life, and um, I don't get very far from simply talking. So a lot of See, the time I, I think people are like, talking. excuse me, can you please talk more? Just kidding. <laughs> no one ever says that to me. But I think sometimes I, I do better when I listen. Sometimes I worry that I take up too much space, so too much talking space. <laughs> um. Dr. Hanley, one time I was in a class. <laughs> Please tell this me that he said Madison talked too much. Okay. No, no, no. This is all about me. Okay, yeah. Um, no, this is my most embarrassing moment probably of my entire academic career. Wow. And that Were trumps the time I said I accidentally wrote ass in a paper. <laughs> ass? <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Accidentally wrote it? Yes. It was like in... Sure. 280. 
Okay, sure. So, and like, I don't think Dr. Kramer noticed it. It was like not a, it was not a paper. It was like right. an assignment, but I was like, oh. it was like after I turned it in and yeah. then I like saw it on digital dialogue or whatever that thing yeah. is called. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just, <laughs> I just included an extra S. And I was so anxious about it and no one said anything. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. So, so the Dr. Hanley one. Yes, Dr. Hanley went, I, like I said, I get really anxious about, um, like talking too much or, um, not doing enough listening. And one time I was in a class, there were four, five people in the class. So this was also winter semester. So very recently, (laughs) (laughs) and there were like four or five people in the class. We sat at a table and, um, Dr. Hanley, we were in a class, um, and no one in the class would ever talk. And it's like a graduate level class. So I'm like, why will no one ever say anything? Um, and so in the same realm of me having anxiety about talking too much, I also have anxiety about professors not thinking that people did the reading or that they want to engage yeah. in conversation. I remember sitting in classes thinking the professor knows that I have not done the reading Yeah, <laughs> because I didn't actually do the reading. And not so much that like I need to have it be known that I did the reading, but like I want the professor to know that like we care. Right. Yeah. And it was in my wheelhouse. It was about book of nature and, um, it was like book of scripture versus book of nature, not mm. verses, but like incorporating the yeah. two. Um, and so obviously I'm like, wow, very passionate about this subject. So I, in my mind, I was like, I am refraining from talking as much as I like <laughs> could be talking. And then I like, I remember I like raised my hand about something like after he had finished talking and he was like, someone else answer. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've become my worst nightmare of like just becoming the person that monopolizes the conversation. But like, even after that, no one talked. So (laughs) that, so you experienced that as a college student. I experienced that as a high schooler. So I don't know if, I don't know if we, you know this about me. So when I was a teenager, I was a nerd for Mormonism like some people are nerds for Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, right? So I was I was like Hermione Granger in seminary where uh, from like the age of 15 to like six, you know, 19, I read nothing but church books from like Desert Book and you know, I've come a long way <laughs> since then. Um, I love it. But I I was the person that my hand shut up every time the seminary teacher asked a question and it got to the point where it was like Okay, Madison, we we we're happy that you know the answers, but let's let everyone else have a try. <laughs> We've come a long way. That's incredible. <laughs> incredible or embarrassing. That's part of Madison's origin story. We'll get there. Oh man. Um, what's next? What's really on the agenda? What's Actually, really Okay, wait, I have one more thing yeah. to say about because most of my embarrassing moments have had to, happened in Dr. Hanley's class. <laughs> when we were in that one. Um, graduate or not graduate, but senior seminar, climate change in the media. Yes. Um, I was, I had braces at that point. You Uh, did? Yeah. But they were like, you know, those like clear retainers. Yeah. Let's call them Visalign. 
We don't get sponsored by them. We don't get sponsored by, <laughs> but Invisalign, if you're listening, I'm just kidding. We don't take sponsorship. But so I had those like trays. I remember like raising my hand and starting to talk. And I was really self-conscious about them because they kind of gave me a lisp. And I started to talk and I like felt like everyone could hear my lisp. <laughs> and so I started to like get really hot and red. Like I could like feel the like... Uh tension building up inside of me and like embarrassment and suddenly I just was like I'm sorry I have braces <laughs> was <laughs> I like there that day comment. I don't know because I don't remember I feel that. like maybe you weren't i probably not maybe you came in late like probably I mean it's not atypical <laughs> of me to come in late but I just like I remember interrupting the entire class to be like I'm sorry I have braces so that's why I'm talking with the list and Dr. Hanley was like no one noticed. No one cares. <laughs> no one noticed. I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, one of the questions that I came up with was when you eat comfort food, what do you turn to? Mm. Ultimate comfort food for me. I don't have a lot, but like when I'm sad and want something like, okay, greasy, it's French fries. Really? Yeah. French fries or chips and salsa, like endless amounts of chips and salsa. I could even do without the salsa. Just literally corn chips. just eat tortilla chips. Yeah. Cause they're so good. Yeah. I love corn chips, tortilla chips, yeah. all of the above. So good. Um, and candy. Oh my gosh. Tell me about it. I have an addiction. <laughs> What's your candy of choice? It's too hard. Like if you're walking into a gas station, you're only coming away with one thing. Peanut butter M&M's. Peanut butter, peanut butter M&M's are so good. Yeah, they're so good. Followed pretty closely by peanut M&M's. Yeah, yeah. Peanut M&M's are really good. I would say sometimes it's like a mood, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes I'm going for the peanut. Sometimes I'm going for the peanut butter. I know. Sometimes I, uh, the peanut, peanut M&M's remind me of baseball games. Mm. And so I like, because I love summertime baseball games, just going and... Mm. Like, you know, sunflower seeds and peanut M&Ms and I don't even like soda. <laughs> um, what is my comfort food? Okay, here's what it is. Um, huh. I just thought of another one. Sorry. What's Can your I other one? You? Yeah. I was just thinking about how much I love potatoes because I was like, wow, I love French fries. Yes. But like mashed potatoes. Yes. Okay, go. Sorry. I didn't mean to um, interrupt. No, I, now I'm just thinking about butter because I put butter in mashed oh my potatoes gosh. and cream cheese butter. and sour cream. Like a, nothing is better than a warm baked potato with butter. With butter. And, and I, like you steams. don't put out for this, but bacon bits on top, some chives, mm -hmm. some sour cream in there. I love chives. I can't eat sour cream. You can't eat sour cream? Dairy. Like Dairy? It kind of wrecks me. Oh, okay. Never mind. I still eat chocolate. Don't tell. I won't tell <laughs> the chocolate that's sitting in front of you. Um, my comfort food is... Obviously, for anyone who knows me, it's my family's uh, muffin recipes. So oh, really? I, uh, we have a muffin recipe that is handed down generation to generation, and I'm the third generation to have it. Um, and uh, uh, it is the kind of recipe where when people ask us for the recipe, um, we print off a fake one from the internet. Shut and say, up. This is, this is the recipe. And they're like, oh, it didn't turn out. We're like, oh, so weird. <laughs> oh well, we have a, a pumpkin muffin, a banana muffin, and a chocolate chocolate chip muffin, and they are divine. And now when I say they're the muffins 
that other muffins prey to, that's <laughs> that's the caliber of muffin we're talking about. <laughs> Where did this recipe come from? From my dad's mom, my grandma. Your grandma just and was then a it got into my mom's hand. Connoisseur. She was like the Betty Crockett of her ward. Like when she Betty passed Crockett? away. Betty well, Crocker. Be- Betty Crocker, sure. <laughs> Davy Crockett, whatever. She was a pioneer. She was on the frontier of food, yeah. right? It, yeah, definitely. It, anyways, um, like when she passed away, there were neighbors, her neighbors and her ward members were coming over to the house to try and steal recipe books. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To try and find the muffin recipe? To try and find the muffin recipe. <laughs> and so we, we, we batted them all away. And then my mom got a hold of the recipe because obviously, you know, she's in the family and then perfected it and then handed it down to me and I can make them perfect. That's incredible. I know. So the only way to get the recipe is to join the family and uh, all my sisters are married. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so you. I'm the only, I'm the only outlet left to get the recipe. That lucky woman. That lucky, lucky woman. Or I'll just hoard my muffins like a dragon until the day I die. <laughs> well, your sisters will have it. At least my sisters will have it. Do they have children? Yes. That's good. Yeah, they do. I'm just worried about somewhere along this road that that muffin recipe then ends, you know? It won't. Okay. Because like, you know, so I have three sisters. So the Daniel's last name begins Falls and ends with you. me, right? Yeah. And so if I don't have any progeny, like I feel like... I have to have progeny just so that I can pass on the, the Daniel's name. I also have to have progeny so that I can pass on the muffin recipe. Yeah. Because if not, it's we're screwed. I mean, I guess my sisters can do it, but I do it the best. Let's be fair. You do. I do. Just kidding. I've never had them, but I'd like to try them now. Oh, no. I'll, I'll make you some muffins. Next time. Very good. Next time. <laughs> Okay, so we're both total uh, tree huggers. Both. <clears throat> both. <laughs> both total tree huggers. Uh, so where did you, do you have, is there any like particular instance in your childhood where you recognize that like this is the beginning of my passion for the earth? Um, I feel like it's hard to say that like passion for the earth came about at a particular time in my life, but I actually would not say, I would not attribute it to my childhood. Really? Yeah. I would attribute it more to like early adulthood. I feel like I'm not an adult, so I can't even say that, but <laughs> I, I would attribute it to like my late teens. Okay. Um, And I feel like I've always enjoyed being outside. My family had a large yard growing up. Um, We spent so much time. We had a creek that ran through our backyard. So we spent hours and hours. You grew up in Salt Lake, right? Yeah. So Red Butte Creek ran through my parents' backyard Uh. and we would go and play for so many hours a day, just like with our Barbies in the stream or like playing Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. We played that so much. And, um, and so, and we had a swing set in our backyard. Um, obviously very lucky to have had such a yard, you know, um, that I think probably a lot of it stems from just enjoying being outside with my family and, um, with my siblings. Um, and I think I was the youngest of six kids. So naturally I think, um, this is nothing against my mother. I think she was maybe just a little tired of, she'd just send us (laughs) outside, you know? Um, so really fun, enjoyable, 
um, time as a youngster. Um, but I would say like appreciation for the earth and kind of care and necessity stemmed um, later. We lived in Seattle for a few years um, and my mom became increasingly um, aware of recycling and the need to recycle. Um, and she brought that home when we moved back to Utah, um, was very diligent about recycling. Um, and I noticed that that kind of, uh, culture or mentality, um, did not translate to a lot of my close friends and their families. Um, and it was just something that I became very aware of, I guess, as a teenager, um, and especially in my school, like making sure that I tried to recycle while I was at school because that I had the opportunity to do so. And I think I became a little self-righteous, which now I feel regretful <laughs> of. But um, <clears throat> in some ways, I feel like that fueled a lot of my interest for the environment. So I can attribute a lot of my like care and, and interest in environmental studies, just tracing that directly to my mom's. Example of recycling, so like just that small thing right has kind of, um, I guess informed the rest of my life. You know, like totally led me down a path that I didn't necessarily think I was going. Thanks, mom. Yeah, but like honestly, you know, I like who would have thought that yeah. simply just recycling and learning to recycle would would um you know, kind of inform those decisions along yeah. the way. Um, but my love of earth and nature, I guess, um, really comes from living in the state of Utah. Like, Absolutely. I, I think we are so lucky to have so many opportunities for outdoor exposure by living in the foothills of, of the Wasatch Mountain Absolutely. range. Absolutely. And then not two, three hours away, you get Red Rock. So Absolutely. yeah. It's kind of this all-encompassing uh, world of wilderness that we live in and like all at our fingertips. People literally come here from other parts of the world just to see that. How great it is yeah. that we so, don't have a good enough appreciation of what lies in our backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last thing I'll say too. Yeah. Um I feel like skiing also like being oh, outside yes. in the winter because I think so many people shut themselves indoors. I'm one of those. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing that you still have an appreciation for wilderness because I think, um, like the more time we spend outside, especially during winter or, or times when elements are a little bit tougher, you kind of gain an appreciation for nature, um, and its power and, and like kind of the um, temporality of your own body <laughs> in the sense that yeah. like you are at the will of nature more yeah. than we are be able to subdue it. In you you get an appreciation for your smallness yeah, exactly. in a good way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of that is kind of the same for me. Um, I grew up in Provo on, in the foothills of Y mountain. Um, and uh, the little cul-de-sac that I grew up in was not entirely developed when we moved in. And so there were dirt hills, piles everywhere, and the foothills were just behind us. And there were creek, you know, before they piped it, there was a creek back back there. And uh, and then the the Seven Peaks Golf Course was um, was derelict back then. It was abandoned because they went bankrupt. And it was before they ever put housing in there. And so there was – I grew up walking through – 
a, a, a golf course that was slowly being reclaimed by the mountain to go down to seven peaks and swim every summer. Right. And so we, we'd go up there to sled, we'd go up there to, you know, build our forts and to like play, you know, night games or whatever up in the, this, this abandoned rewilding golf course. And it was phenomenal. It was so much fun. And then eating dirt and all that stuff, you know, in the, (laughs) in where all the houses were being built. But, um, so that, that experience certainly kind of grounded me early on, but I also was a, an intensely curious child. I remember my, my parents, my, we were subscribed to a a discovery kids magazine. I don't know if you got those when you were a kid. Um, but they were essentially like national geographic. Yeah. So I got that when I was 12, my parents subscribed, but like when, when I was like younger, younger. Oh, um, like the things with the animals. Yeah. Yeah. We got those too. Yeah. So did every kid get that? I I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Um, but I remember chewing through those because each one was on tornadoes. One was on like, uh, you know, lions or animals, you know, geology or whatever this stuff. And so it was, it was information that I was like, I could see the natural world in this new way because I was intensely curious and, uh, my, my grandpa saw my curiosity and he, um, he kind of fed me materials to be like, to, to coax my little curiosity fire into a big old flame. Right. So like, I loved dinosaurs and, uh, he would clip me out newspaper articles of, you know, of prehistoric crocodile skulls found as big as a man or whatever. <laughs> and he took me to see dinosaur Jim Jensen, who was a BYU professor yeah. who discovered gigantosaurus or whatever. He was like one of the, the, the foremost paleontologists at the time and he was friends with him. And so he, I went to go meet dinosaur Jim Jensen, um, before he, before he passed away. And so I, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by people who could feed my curiosity and not let it just fizzle out into like, you know, entertainment. Not that I didn't, play my fair share of video games growing up too. But I, uh, I also was intensely, uh, intensely passionate and curious about natural things growing yeah. up. Yeah. I think that's also, I'm glad you brought up like video games and TV. Like I definitely had my fair <laughs> share of, I mean, we didn't have cable, but like I watched so much PBS and I also played a lot of Nintendo 64. What was your game? Definitely Mario Kart. Yes. Later, Mario Party. Yes. Also, 007. Our family played a lot of 007. (laughs) My brothers, it was more like Madden. And then when we got a PlayStation, well, we got the PlayStation 2. um, And they played a lot of like Tony Hawk and this one snowboard game that I can't remember, but it was actually kind of fun. I don't know. Okay. Um, And I don't know if I can say. Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto? We what kind of game. people would play that? I think my brothers kidding. bought it and my parents had no idea. Oh, no. I remember playing that game as a teenager and like trying to obey all the laws and not it's running. It's impossible. Run. I know it is. It's literally impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. They make that game so you have to break. I thought it was really fun to steal cars in that game. Oh, it was so much fun. Just pulling people out. So much fun. Pull we people out. We have to stop out. talking about this because right, I'm right, scared yeah. my mom is going to be like, <laughs> what? Well, that's a good... Uh, what was there any, um, cause we're, we're, you know, we're talking about media, TV, video, video games. Was there any particular media that was highly influential on you growing up? Both earthy and both just influential in general. Okay. Influential and people may laugh at this, but Arthur. Like, I was going to say Arthur because. Arthur has informed like 
90% of the encounters that I experience on a day-to-day basis. Like I feel like it prepared me to be an adult with like a sense of humor from a very young age. Really? Yeah. And I also am like amazed at how much they were able to incorporate into an episode. Um, as far as like learning kind of like ethical principles, but also just like art history, um, learning to deal with your problems, like humor. Like I said, they, they had a lot of these kind of like parody episodes and they had a lot of guest stars. Um, but also just the way that they would talk about certain scenarios and things that they would get into. I still reference it today. I think the only episode of Arthur that I ever remember seeing at least is the new year's Eve episode. Okay. Go on. Which one? Which one? Okay. I guess there's more than one. I think, (laughs) I think it was that Arthur had it in his mind that like something crazy. It's the greatest thing ever to stay up on Christmas Eve, Grandma Thora or New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. And that something weird and like wild happened. And that, you know, I remember some scenes of just his imagination and then him staying up and like not even hardly being able to make it and then just being super unenthused by the passage (laughs) of the clock from 59 to zero. Exactly. And you're like, wow, that encapsulates all of my young adult life as a New Year's Eve goer. (laughs) Like really nothing happens. Uh, Hooray. Least exciting holiday. Highest expectations. Worst holiday. Um. Yeah, so I would say Arthur. Um, I don't know if I can really think of anything particularly earthy um, beyond just like kind of nature show. I mean, PBS always had like nature and history shows um, that I found very fascinating. Um, I was... I really liked history. And so I feel like a lot of the nerd. time, I know. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, I was that nerdy kid that's like, I only want to read biographies. And people wow. are like, you're boring. And I was like, I know. That was me after my mission. <laughs> but I had, I don't know. I've always had a really hard time with like fiction, um, especially science fiction. And now obviously I like, you know, being in the, position and in, in the academic realm that I feel like I'm trying to enter, uh, I have to be a little bit more open to those things. So I've been <laughs> reluctantly reading a lot of fiction, but, but yeah, I, f- I feel like because like history often accompanies, uh, ideas of developing land, um, just naturally because of what it is. And so I, I feel like a lot of that informed how I felt about nature too. But what about you? TV, movies, books? I, I was a voracious reader. So all of it, I was, I, uh, I consumed a lot of media growing up. Um, but I'd say the pinnacle, the most influential thing on me when I was a teenager was Avatar The Last Airbender. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember, I remember seeing the previews for it on TV and, and, it premiered, it premiered general conference weekend. Um, whatever, whatever year it was, I remember it was, it was spring general conference weekend or winter. I don't know. Anyways, but when we were out of town and I knew that I was like stoked on this show. Um, and so we recorded on, on VHS. 
Whoa, yeah. I know. So we so I we recorded the first episode on VHS and I remember watching it and being like feeling inside of me like no other show understood me quite like Avatar did or that I that that I the way that Avatar mirrored my experience was so spot on that like nothing else really compares. Okay, in what way? I'm very curious because yeah. I just watched it for the first time last year. Did you finish it? Yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I was, I it was it. I think it was in a way that I couldn't quite articulate when I was a teenager. Okay. It just felt good. It just felt real. It felt like, like, like something I'd never seen or experienced before. Yet was touching something inside of me that I always knew had been there. If, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Just in the, uh, in the, uh, well, number one, Avatar Last Airbender tape borrows heavily from Eastern cultures and Eastern, yeah. Eastern spirituality. And I, uh, I think I'm always curious about, I mean, obviously adult Madison, uh, you know, has read all of the, you know, the Buddhist and the Hindu texts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, uh, the, the kind of the magic of the world is this, elemental bending power. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the, the visuals of it was something that was completely unique. Didn't, you know, you didn't really have that, you know, kind of the martial arts bending, you know, I watched Dragon Ball Z as a kid and stuff or these other cartoons and it wasn't nearly as dynamic or like, or aesthetically beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, uh, so it was, it was this way of relating with the earth. I mean, this is, this is adult Madison looking back and put in, trying to describe how, how, what it would have meant to me as a teenager, but it was a way of visualizing this intimacy with the earth that, you know, that, you know, within the show, it's like, Oh, I'm an earthbender, I'm an airbender, firebender, whatever. It's that the, the element itself becomes an extension of you mm-hmm. as you learn these bending arts. Right. Yeah. And I, was so captivated by that idea as a kid, as well as, um, as I've already mentioned, I was incredibly a nerd for Mormonism at the time. Well, not that I'm not these days, <laughs> it just takes different forms. Um, but the, in Avatar, there was a direct correlation between the, the bending was not just a martial art, but it was a spiritual art yeah. and that a character's spirituality was a d- directly interfaced with this with this martial practice, this, this, this practice of, of intimacy with the earth and something about that grabbed hold of my imagination and absolutely was formative for my entire youth. And like, and I'm sure that like I was, you know, inside baseball here, I was so much a nerd for Mormonism that I couldn't really see beyond it. Yeah. Um, and I know that Avatar Last Airbender, it's borrowing from Eastern traditions um, so heavily put a foot in the door in my mind for other things to come into my, into my, my world of spiritual truths later on so that I could oh, recognize spiritual truths from other places. Okay. I really like that. Yeah. I just watched Totoro when I was little. Well, I, I was going to say but my I feel second, like it's similar my second thing sense. was Ghibli films. Yeah. Cause I grew up, I grew up watching Totoro and, and Miyazaki films and Ghibli. And I, the kind of the magical realism, the kind of the wondrousness of those, those, those films absolutely kind of enchanted the world for me. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, you know, that's almost like I'm always trying to get back to that or trying to find that in whatever media is that I try and like, mm -hmm. that I consume these days is I'm trying to find something that can like thread the balance between a magical real world. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious as far as like films in adulthood, um, like what are your favorite maybe not explicitly environmental, but like what are some films that have affected you environmentally, if that makes environmentally? sense? Environmentally? Yeah, like in in its in the context of environmental humanities, whether you're drawing those connections <clears throat> or if they're explicitly stated, it doesn't matter. Um, well, I think the obvious is Tree of Life. Yeah, oh my because gosh. Because we, we I, me and you have both watched that film for multiple classes throughout our tenure at BYU. Yeah. Um, I would say as well, like, I don't know, once my brain was kind of primed for reading, considering other art forms, media as sacred texts to some degree that my eyes were primed to be able to see truth in whatever. Right. And I also right. like the, the gap between the sacred and profane. I love to collapse that. Right. And so I love comics and I love comic book movies and all that stuff. I remember the final, the paper that I wrote for the, the, the climate change and media class was on wonder woman. It was Wonder Woman and the, the war for the Anthrop Anthropocene. And uh, I remember when I first saw one, the, you know, Wonder Woman uh, in theaters, I, it was like three weeks before that paper was due. I was like, I have to scrap everything that I was going to write on and write, write on this, this because the, the kind of the story is, is that evil isn't centralized in any one place. It'd be so much easier if there was one bad guy, but there's not. Yeah. The problem is that we are the problem and we all have to reconcile ourselves to the immensity of this Yeah, and accept that we're all guilty on some level. Yeah. We have to deal with that. Interesting. Yeah. What about you? Are there any films recently? Oh my gosh. In adulthood? Recently, yes. So many. But I would say two- Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've never kidding. even seen Transformers, <laughs> but I just know that it would be kind of a heavy eye roll for me. Um, one of the films that I thought about pretty often was Interstellar. Yes. But in a way that um, does not make me feel, to me, that film felt, felt a little, not anti-environmental, but a little bit less- um, empathetic to the idea of valuing the earth um, in the sense that eventually they abandon it. Um, and I don't, I don't really like films like that. Yeah. I don't really like it's a little pessimistic like that. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, at, at one point if the earth becomes unusable, we can simply discard it. Right. Um, and I find that very problematic, especially in the context of our religion. Especially. Yeah. And so f for me, Interstellar kind of um, had that effect on me. Um, one film that I thought was interesting uh, that I don't think anyone really thinks about necessarily as environmental um, is The Kingsman, the first one. Have you really? Seen that? Yeah, because Samuel L. Jackson's character, his oh, whole yeah, thing is right. about yeah. um, like eugenics, you know, yeah. the idea of getting rid of like the poor, essentially, or the people that can't afford to be on earth anymore. Um, and that that will somehow help resolve our climate problem, but it was satirized in such a way that it almost made it seem like, how could anyone have this idea? It's so violent. It's so 
criminal to think that way. Um, that it was almost like, no, we have to find, find alternative solutions. So that movie, interestingly enough, pointed me in that direction too. Um, most recently, the two films that I'm obsessed with as far as environmental purposes are concerned, um, the Danish film Ordit, hmm. um, which is just the Danish word for the word. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> The, the word um, is the word. The word, the word. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's a really interesting movie about a character who reads too much Kierkegaard and becomes, um, and, and thinks he is essentially a second savior. Huh. Uh, and there's kind of like this miraculous ending that occurs, uh, and just like the use of light and it's a very static film. Um, the camera doesn't move a lot and there are these extremely long takes and wide angles. Um, and it's just very interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I, there are some things that I've been thinking about with it environmentally lately. Um, and then finally, sorry, I've been droning on for too long, but I just love film. Um, finally. Okay. Wait, I have two. Okay. But, so first, First Reformed. First Reformed. Yes. I haven't heard of it. Madison. I am obsessed. Is it, does it have uh, Ethan Hawke in it? Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. That's right. It is so good. And every time I think about it, I think of new things to talk about. Really? Because it is so packed with ideas and thoughts and just like layers of complexity regarding climate change and and doubt and uh, like reconciliation with ourselves and guilt. And it's amazing. And that's hope. How I, that's how I feel about Princess Mononoke. Yeah. It's so good. That's so good too. So good. But you have to watch first reform. Okay. I know I and then tree of life. Um, uh, Malik, Terrence Malik yeah. also recently directed, um, um, a hidden life. Yes. It is so good. And it really? is so beautiful. It's so stunning. The like uh, cinematography and just the like photography of Austria is incredible. It's stunning. Really? Yeah. Um, let's jump into the final, uh, cause ultimately what this podcast is about is it's about spirituality and right. it's about spirituality in the earth. Right. Right. And so I think what, you know, at least if I was, you know, the audience, I would want to know where each one of us is kind of coming from. Yeah. Um, so what, <laughs> what is your relationship with the church or Mormonism at large, Mormonism, culturally speaking, you know, your membership in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more narrowly speaking, you know, larger speaking, Mormonism includes like I-15 and Jell-O and the Wasatch Front. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you, so like, how, how would you, how would you, you classify yourself in there? What's your relationship? What if I want you to go first? Then I will go first. Okay. <laughs> I want you to go first. Um, you now we've already alluded, uh, to that. I was kind of a nerd for Mormonism growing up really, really big time. Uh, probably a little self-righteous. I mean, very, I was self-righteous, went on a mission, um, kind of got turned inside out by my mission. Didn't really enjoy it at all. Um, Interesting. came back with some PTSD, uh, and some unresolved resentment, anger, bitterness that I didn't realize that I had, um, kind of at the church as an institution. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we could talk, I could talk for a long time about my mission, uh, but just kind of high level. I felt 
I think, you know, at, at the time, I don't think that I was able to put the language to it, but, but looking back, um, I felt a little dehumanized, um, as a missionary that I don't feel like any, either of my mission presidents really cared about me as an individual very much past the name tag. And as well for two years, I felt like I was pushing up against, um, and fighting against kind of the bureaucracy, the, the kind of the machine of, of, of church versus where I was like, intuitively, I understood the spirituality of it. Right. This, so there's, it's kind of this, the, 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 the fly in the ointment, I guess, is that like, we have this, this church that's global and it needs, a, it needs some kind of an institutional structure to gird it up. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about a spiritual practice. It's about an individual and communal spiritual practice. Yeah. And this machinery of an institution is just there to facilitate that. Right. And some, you know, we can get them mixed up and like, sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Um, but for two years I kind of spent having the forest and the trees separated and having God and the church separated very much in my mind. Cause I think sometimes, at least I know I did the church and God were very much the At same odds. thing. Oh, they okay. were, they were almost the same thing in my mind. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, I see what you're and, saying. And, uh, and so for two years they got ripped apart. And so after my mission, I know I ended up going to therapy at BYU to try and kind of declaw myself to try and resolve some of this anger that I felt. Um, and to try and refigure out what my relationship was with the church as an institution rather than as just a spiritual practice. Um, and you know, it's been, you know, probably it's been eight years since I've been back from a mission. Um, so I've come a long, I've come a long way. Um, but, uh, I, now I'm very comfortable with my membership in the church. Um, very comfortable is probably overstating it. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's easier than others. Um, and some, sometimes it's harder than others. Yeah. I feel like, you know, in a pandemic where like I haven't gone to church in six months because we're in a pandemic, right? it's a little bit harder to feel like I'm a part of the community. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I feel like my spiritual practice I feel like I am rooted in this kind of universal spiritual ground that, you know, if it's true here, it's true everywhere. Right. So the, that's one of the central ideas of Mormonism is that like, we're not saying no one else is, is true. Right. We're saying gather up everything else and bring it here. And I, that's very much a part of my own personal spiritual practice is, is honoring the truth that is found everywhere and recognizing that if something is true here, like the gospel is true here. And by the gospel, I mean this pattern of death or of, of order of order, disorder and reorder of life, death and resurrection as kind of this universal pattern that we see in the earth. We see in, in scriptural traditions. If it's true here, it's true everywhere. It's just like gravity. If the gravity is holding to my, holding me to my seat here, it's also holding you to your seat there mm -hmm. and the person in Australia to the ground, even though Australia's yeah. upside down, somehow <laughs> it's, somehow it's working. Yeah. But the, the, you know, if, if something's true here, it's true everywhere. And of course, you know, I've, you know, I, my, I've expanded kind of my, my spiritual, um, mentorship. You know, I love Richard Rohr, as I've said many times, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis was a huge boon to me when I came back from my mission. Um, and, uh, yeah, I tend to regard, you know, most things as sacred text to some degree that I think, you know, our, our, our central, our centralized quote unquote centralized 
LDS canon of our, you know, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, the Bible, uh, and the Pearl Great Price are like capital T or capital S scripture, right? But I regard virtually everything else as lowercase s scripture as well, right? right? And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this more at length, but I, I, uh, I have my membership in the institution of the church, and I feel no reason to change that. I love being a member of the church. I love being Mormon. I love kind of the the weirdness, the uniqueness of of Mormonism. I know sometimes it's weird, but sometimes the weirdness is beautiful and ugly at the same time. Um, but I uh, I I like to practice a big tent, a big tent Mormonism that includes as many people as we can bring in. I love that. That was a lot of words. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> because the reason I wanted you to go first was, um, I just feel like you articulate so many things about the church that I love um, as well. And sometimes I have a hard time... Um, you know, phrasing that within the context of my beliefs. I don't know if that made sense, but, but saying, you know, like living a big tent version of the gospel is so central to how I feel about the church, um, that I want everyone to experience the goodness of the church. Um, and those things that bring me joy through an understanding of Jesus Christ and through an understanding of, you know, him being able to understand and be the ultimate empathizer. Like those are the things that I want people to be able to experience within the church. Um, But also what I love that you said is the idea of finding scripture outside of scripture or typical modes of scripture. Um, and that not all scripture is written. Um, that became so evident to me in the study of nature actually. And that, you know, we are not limited to text on a page for truth, um, and for knowledge and, and for understanding of God. Um, because I think in some instances, uh, the truest way to feel God or to feel, um, you know, a, a distinct connection to spirituality is not necessarily through reading for some people, um, but rather through experience and feeling and immersion, um, in something that is greater than themselves, um, be it nature, community, you know, right. things that, that, um, are inherently good, um, And so I feel like my connection with the church, obviously, like I would say I'm very active in the church and in the gospel. Um, That is not to say that I feel uh, very keen on everything that, you know, I learn or that um, that has happened in the history of the church. Yeah. but that I too experience a lot of doubt that I experience a lot of questions. Um, and I'm still trying to understand where those fit within the larger context of the gospel. Um, and with my testimony of it. Um, but that being said, I also believe in a lot of nuance. 
Um, and that, that nuance, I feel like allows space and open space for people, um, who are not like me to benefit from the church, um, and to, again, you know, uh, occupy that large tent, uh, that you were talking about. Um, because I don't think, I hardly think anything is black and white. Well, I mean, if we're going to take the, the earth as a text, yeah. right? The earth is not black and white right. and it's not even shades of gray. It's colorful. colorful. There are so mm-hmm. many, there's so much dimensionality to every color yeah. that, that the universe is screaming at us that mm-hmm. nothing is as binary as we want it to be. Right. And like to further that, I think something so beautiful about the film um, Tree of Life is that it kind of visually articulates that so well that like there are parts of the earth that are not pristine, beautiful uh, you know, elements that, I mean, there's this one scene of a dinosaur who's put in a position um, where he almost kills another dinosaur. Tree of Life is a weird It's job. wild. <laughs> You're like, what the heck? Um, but I think uh, something that is kind of beautiful about that film is that it can show you, you know, Earth is not only beautiful, but it also has so many complex elements in which that beauty is underestimated um, and can also be very harsh. Um, but that it isn't binary, like you said. It is not just beauty and or or um, you know tragedy. It is a combination of the two and some form of an amalgamation. You know, like it it is a mixture. Um, and and so I think in that sense, like the nuance of human individuals, um, just becomes so important and, and that that's what I want the church to look like too. I don't want it to be black and white. Um, now maybe people think I'm like a moral relativist, but (laughs) I, I mean, I think there is universal truth in some senses, but I also think that we don't know how merciful God will be. Um, and we often forget that Jesus atoned for all of our sins. Right. So, um, at the very foundation of my belief in the gospel rests those two principles. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would agree that, uh, you know, I, I think we get in the church. I know that, and I, I mean, I did, I, I'm, I'm, I was guilty of this too, you know, that we get so caught up on you know, whether or not something is intellectually true or, you know, external to us, um, that to me, that's honestly one of the least interesting questions to me now. I'm more interested in, is this powerful for me? Yeah. Is this going to change the way that I, that I relate and interact with other human beings in my, in my lived reality? Um, is this beautiful? Yeah. Is it complex, complicated? Absolutely. It is. Is everything on earth complicated? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, but it's also so like, I mean, it's so complicated, but if you dilute it down, like we're all just children of God trying to make our way through this, you know, trying to figure out how to be our best selves. Right. I mean, that's at the very core. Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of rest. I got really comfortable with uncertainty. I got really comfortable with doubt, right? Like almost where I, I would prefer the space to not know, right? Either we, we love knowing exactly because it's an ego trip and it allows me to control things to some degree. And I want to kind of let go of that. I want to let yeah. go of the need to, the need to know for certain. And for me, at least experientially, 
what I feel like I do know for certain is that the universe is made of love. Bottom line, the universe is made of love. Like I feel like I've experienced that. Um, and it's a radical kind of love that ultimately we're all on the same team. We're all here together. And there's, that's the most important thing is that life and each other, all of this is this fantastic, phenomenal gift that we've been given. And I am trying to, you know, do my best with what I've been given. And I'm more interested in, uh, I'm less interested in knowing whether or not, of course, I want to know that the church is 100% true, blah, 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 because it'd make it, it would be, it'd be really easy at that point. Yeah. Right. But I'm more interested in, is this powerful to me? Can I do some good here? Can I, can I help people who are struggling? Can I, you know, X, Y, or Z, those things to me are more important than, than knowing f- for sure, 100% X, Y, Z thing about history. <laughs> right. And that like, even if it's not, even in all of this craziness, if it ends up not being true, but you got to the end of your life by being a good person from the principles that were set forth by the gospel, then I don't think you'll be in the wrong, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, full disclosure, I do think that the church is an incredibly powerful uh, thing. I think the the gospel itself Absolutely. I think the gospel, if, if we're going to frame the gospel as this, this gospel of love, of yeah. the, the power and the reality of, of love in the universe and of the, the, uh, kind of universal nature of, of life, death and resurrection that I think that stuff is 100% real. Yeah. The church. Agree. Absolutely. There's something weird here. Weird in the sense of it's uncanny. It's uncanny in this beautiful sort of way. It's uncanny in the sense that in the way that like there's beauty at the bottom of the ocean where no one sees it. Yeah. And yet there's beauty there. So the church is kind of, it's uncanny in that sense to me where it's like, yeah, it's complicated. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, but it's also kind of uncanny. Yeah. It's also kind of beautiful. There's also, I can feel like I can see some, some divine fingerprints on stuff. Um, not, that's not, not to say that I don't see divine fingerprints on a lot of things. Right. But that I feel while I, while I, I, I'm very comfortable with uncertainty. I'm here anyways. Yeah. And I'm here because I believe to some degree. (laughs) Yeah. Or else I wouldn't be here. We all are here because we believed at some point to a certain degree. And, uh, you know, even actively, like I, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over so that I can go back to church Yeah, because I, I miss it. And I, I, I love being a part of this community and I do believe to one degree or another, you know, and, uh, sometimes it's easier than others, but, Mm -hmm. but here I am. Yeah. And that's, that's the best that I can do is that I can be here and, and try and participate and be part of the community. Yeah. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful way to end. (laughs) I feel it in my bones. Well, good. Any any last uh, little fun things for this bonus episode? No, I mean, I feel like I revealed this too much about myself. You played Grand Theft Auto and you <laughs> accidentally wrote ass in your paper? <laughs> oh, no. I'm exposed. Oh, forgive me. I was 20. Oh, it's okay. Okay. I've said a lot worse. <laughs> Thank you. 
thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. 